I want to start by telling you about one of the longest marriages in American history. Um, until just a few weeks ago, the record was held by uh, Mr. Ralph and Mrs. Dorothy Kohler. Um, they've uh, lived in Indio, California. They were married in 1935. I don't know what your maths is, maths is like, but I believe that makes about 86 years. Um, can you be married? Um, it would be wonderful to be married 86. I didn't mean to sound incredulous. Um, in an interview last year, in about, I think it was September was when they were married, um, they were interviewed, and Ralph, who was 104 years old at the time, uh, he said, the secret to a long marriage is togetherness. That's sweet, huh? Togetherness. Um, your U.S. Census Bureau data shows that only 6% of Americans, American couples reach their 50th um, or golden anniversary, um, putting the colas in a rare category. Anybody here had a golden anniversary? Yeah, Barbara, congratulations. Um, well, Ralph, he credited their longevity in life um, to uh, healthy habits. Neither of them had ever drunk alcohol or smoked. Uh, they were also ballroom dancing champions, and, uh, and they'd made their career out of um, duck hunting and selling duck hunting hides. There you go, Kohler, apparently. Um, but sadly, Ralph passed away just a few weeks ago at the end of January. Um, 2022, he was 104, um, and it was just a month after his wife had passed away. She passed away just before Christmas. Um, she was 102. It's sad, but kind of wonderful as well. What a great story. Um, and if you're anything like me, we love a good love story. And this is something wholesome about a love story that lasts a lifetime. And our Bible passage today is all about a love story that lasts a lifetime. That is the love story between Abraham and Sarah. So uh, as we reflect on that today, um, we're going to learn some lessons from them. But first, why don't we pray and ask God to teach us as we read from the Bible. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible and your words to us. Uh, will you teach us today about life and love and faith as we hear from you today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know we've been following the story of Abraham and the promises of God in, the, uh, in our sermon series over the last five weeks or so. And even though it's this very old part of the Bible, from the very first book, um, thousands of years ago, it still has lots to teach us today. Um, and it's a story that teaches us um, principally about how God's Old Testament people came into being and uh, how they came to live in the land that we now call Israel. But it's also, maybe more so, the story of God's promises to us, uh, promises that God always keeps uh, even when it seems hard to see at the time. And that's where today's story starts in Genesis 23. We've been journeying with Abraham for 60 years when we get to Genesis 23. Um, he was 75 years old when God called him out of the land of his father, and God made three promises to him. I'm going to test you again. Do you remember what the three promises are? Land, nation, and blessing. You guys are my best classroom ever. God promised Abraham that he would bring him into a land, um, a countryside that would belong to his offspring. And that was the next part of the, the, the promise. Um, God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation, that he would have so many descendants that they wouldn't be able to count them. It would be like trying to count the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky at night. And lastly, God promised to bless Abraham, not just him personally, but to use his family to bring blessing to the entire world. And that's a story that builds out through all of the scriptures. We'll get to the end one day. These were the promises that God had made to Abraham when he was 75 years old. 
and his wife was 65. And one of the things we've learned through this series is that God's promises don't always materialize overnight. Abraham and Sarah, they waited 25 years for their first son to be born, Isaac. And so Abraham was 100 and, and Sarah was 90. And neither of them had ever imagined or expected to have the joy of children at such an advanced age. Um, in fact, they both laughed at the idea so much that they called their son laughter. And that's what Isaac means. It means laughter. Not that their marriage had always been filled with laughter. And many years had been filled with the grief of childlessness. Um, their attempts to build a family through one of Sarah's slaves, well, that brought unhappiness to the home. And the marriage had been in jeopardy not once but twice as Abraham allowed Sarah to be taken into the harem or into, uh, to be the wife of a foreign king. And as the ladies in my wife's small group observed this week, surely when Abraham and Isaac came home and she found out that Isaac had almost been sacrificed, there must have been words, surely. But every relationship has its ups and downs, especially when they last more than 60 years. And it's probably likely that Abraham and Sarah had been married for more like 100 years. Perhaps they'd been, you know, a lot younger. He might have been, you know, 25 and she was 15 or something like that when they got married. Despite all of those difficulties, Sarah had been Abraham's soulmate through all of the years following God's promises. You know, she'd chosen to go with Abraham as they left um, not only Abraham's father, fatherland, the, the place where he was born and his family, well, she would have left her family behind as well. And she'd chosen to follow God's promises with her husband. She'd made the journey from, from Ur to, to, uh, to north and then down to Canaan. And then they'd gone south in Egypt in the famine. And she'd stayed with Abraham in all of the pinnacle moments of his life. Sarah was Abraham's princess. That's what her name meant. And, uh, but after so many years together, Genesis 23 opens with tragic news which is the news of Sarah's death. And you can read it right there. Verse 1, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Um, Abraham mourns and he weeps for his lost wife. Uh, I know some of you know what it feels like to lose your soulmate. Um, I don't pretend to imagine that I know what that is like. Um, but in these two verses, we just get a glimpse into Abraham and his pain. You know, he goes to mourn for Sarah and, and he weeps over her. Commentator Kent Hughes says, this is a very brief description of grief for such a long marriage. How do you make sense of a loss like this? How do you process the death of a loved one, especially one so special? I want to take you to some ancient wisdom um, from the book of Ecclesiastes that helps us think about death, perhaps in the way that we don't normally think about it. Um, and by the way, I'm hoping this is a little preview of a series. I'd love to do a series in Ecclesiastes later this year. This is going to give you a little taste. Um, Ecclesiastes is this book of wisdom um, written by perhaps the wisest man ever, Solomon, the son of the great King David. Um, Ecclesiastes means teacher, and so we often call the person who writes it teacher rather than Solomon. So in Ecclesiastes 7, the teacher teaches us this about death, and it's there on your sheets. It says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And the teacher turns upside down what most of us would think about death. Uh, you know, if we had to choose between going to a party and going to a funeral, 
I know which one I'd prefer to go to, right? We'd all want to go to the party. You know, what we remember about life is the feast with a family or, or memorable vacations or going away for a weekend or, or a trip with our best friends, a meal at a fantastic restaurant. That's often what we remember about life, and they're the, they're the events that we look back on. And those are the events that punctuate a happy life. But the teacher teaches us that we learn more from a funeral than we do from the party. When we go to the house of mourning, it reminds us that the eternal matters. There's more to life than these 80 or 90 years or however many God gives you. It says right there in verse 2, death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take this to heart. And so the death of a loved one, it reminds us that this life is not all that there is. Eternity awaits us. The blessing that God promised to Abraham, well, that blessing awaits us too in the land that God promised, not a land that can be invaded or ruined by pollution, but this everlasting city where God himself dwells amongst us, a place of happiness, never again to be interrupted by the pain of loss and death. We'll never lose a loved one again. And so that's what the death of a loved one should remind us of. That's what the teacher teaches us. He says all of the wonderful experiences that we cherish in this lifetime, they're actually only a shadow of the good things that are to come. It's almost like our real life hasn't even begun yet. The best is yet to come. When famous evangelist Billy Graham spoke about his death, he was quoting a very old preacher when he said this, but he said, someday you'll read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I, will be, I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Isn't that great? I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall be more alive than I am now. Isn't that a great way to think about eternity? Jesus promises that he came to give us life and life to the full. And the beginning of that life happens now, but it's a life that never ends. It goes into all of eternity. There is a catch that eternal life is only for those who align themselves with Jesus in this lifetime. Because the reality of death is that we'll also one day stand before God and the throne of God and the throne of God's judgment. And we'll have to give an account for our life and what we did with it. And that might sound intimidating, but I don't think it should be. Because what I love about the death of Sarah um, is the way that she's remembered by the New Testament. She's not remembered for her mistakes. She's remembered for her faith. In 1 Peter 3.6, Sarah is commended for trusting God as she followed Abraham through all of the ups and downs of their long journey together. In Hebrews 11, Sarah is commended for trusting God that he would give her a child just as he promised he would. Sarah is remembered for her faith, not the mistakes. And so the death of Sarah reminds us that we are more than the sum total of our mistakes in life. By faith in Christ, God looks back on our lives and when we have faith in Jesus, he credits our faith as righteousness, just like he did with Abraham. Our mistakes are forgiven. Our mistakes are put behind us when we give them to Jesus on the cross. That's why we, that's why we have the cross here in church to remind us. That's why we sung the song just now, forgiveness is with Jesus Christ. When we uh, look to Hebrews chapter 11, there's this fantastic list of the heroes of the faith, of those heroes of the Bible who are commended for their faith and if you ever have a chance to look at Hebrews 11 there's this list of people and when you think about their stories none of them were perfect none of them lived mistake-free lives none of them lived sin-free lives they were all like you and they were all like me 
But God remembers their faith, not their mistakes. Um, Death is a terrible part of life this side of heaven. And the grief is real, and, and I don't want to minimize that. But Jesus takes the sting out of death by showing us that there is life beyond the grave. And Jesus takes the sting out of death by showing us that we are more than the sum total of our mistakes. God will remember our faith on the day that we stand before him. And all of that means that we can appreciate death for what it teaches us. Um, commentator David Gibson, he writes, and this is on your page, death dons a preacher's robe to tell us that life is finite and we must use it well. Life is finite and we, we must use it well. You and I are finite. One day this life will be over. So how are you using your life? Well, the second part of the passage for today is the account of Abraham buying a burial plot for his wife. Um, And it feels kind of strange that the negotiations for a piece of land take up most of the chapter um, when so little is said about the death of Sarah. Um, You know, what is so important about this field that we have such a long account of of buying and selling? Um, Why does it warrant this level of intention? Well, our first clue is there in verse 4. And then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and he spoke to the Hittites and he said, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so that I can bury my dead. Um, Do you see the problem? Abraham, he is a foreigner and a stranger, even though he's been living in the promised land, in this land for something like 60 years. And uh, by the way, this is the promised land, isn't it? This is the land that God swore to give to Abraham and to give to his offspring. But for now, Abraham is still a foreigner. Uh, For 60 years, he's probably spent those 60 years grazing his flocks on borrowed land, moving between watering holes, living in tents as his ancestors did in the Middle East. And perhaps this is the first time that a family member has died, or at least one significant enough to need a burial plot. It's it's kind of amazing in, in itself that they've lived so long. Over the course of some 60 years, this problem had never arisen. But now Abraham's first wife lies dead and he wants to give her a permanent place. He wants to give her a home in the land. As a foreigner, however, he has no land. And so Abraham has to negotiate the purchase of a property. Um, And what we see in the middle verses of the chapter is this very formal process where the buyers and sellers go back and forth in polite tones or perhaps it's mock politeness, I'm not sure. Underneath the formality though, they are negotiating a property sale. And nobody ever gives away prime real estate for nothing, do they? Follow along with me from verse 4. I'm going to paraphrase a bit. So Abraham says, I'm a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so I can bury my dead. Verse 6, the Hittites reply, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Well, Abraham, he bows down before them. By the way, this is the only time Abraham bows before anybody, but it's clearly part of the formality of the Hittites. Um, And just as it was part of the formality for the Hittites to offer Abraham their tomb for free, I'm sure they didn't actually mean it. It's kind of disingenuous in a way, but that's often how it works in honor-shame cultures. The outward demeanor doesn't always reflect the inner attitude. They have to play this polite game. Well, Abraham continues negotiating. He he wants an introduction to Ephron, who has a cave, verse 9, at the end of one of his fields. Um, Abraham offers to buy the cave for full price, and Ephron, he likes the game, verse 11. No, my Lord, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. 
I give it to you in the presence of my people. He looks magnanimous, doesn't he? Bury your dead, Genesis 23, 11. Three times Abraham, uh, Ephron says he will give the property to, Ephron, uh, to Abraham. Not just the cave, but now it's also the field. Um, and he says it in front of everybody. Um, if you want to make yourself sound generous, this is the way you do it. In the front of all of your friends, well, I'm, I'm going to give this big thing. He sounds magnanimous. Abraham bows again. And he offers to pay, not just for the cave anymore, but now the cave and the field. Ephron answers, listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of gold. But what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Um, turns out 400 shekels was a lot to bury uh, for a field and a cave. Um, but Abraham is in no position to haggle, not without losing face. And so he has to pay for it. He, he weighs out, I think it was five pounds of silver. And uh, he does it in front of everybody. They do it according to the weights that the, the, the merchants use. In verse 16, everything is done by the book. And uh, the land belongs to Abraham now because he did the deal in front of the elders and they give him the deed. In fact, it tells us twice. The land was deeded to him. The land was deeded to Abraham. Why such a big deal over a field? Well, after six years, uh, 60 years wandering through the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, until this moment, not any of it had belonged to him. None of it had belonged to him until this moment. And I don't know what it felt like for Abraham having to pay for the land that God said would be his. God had said he would give it to Abraham. He didn't say he would have to pay for it. Um, I don't think that's the point of the passage that we're meant to worry that he paid for it. I don't think it's like when Abraham tried to hurry up God's promise by having a baby with Hagar. Rather, I think this is a moment of great faith by Abraham, a moment where he puts his trust in God's promises that one day his offspring would own this very part and every part of the land on which he was now standing, this land they'd been living in for such a long time. And so Abraham becomes this stranger who has to pay double for a plot of land to bury his wife. He's a stranger who they call prince while they take his money as a sucker. He's a stranger who probably had to pay to water his flocks and herds and, and uh, a stranger and a foreigner and never somebody who belonged in this promised land until this moment when he buries his wife in that cave and he trusts that one day he too will be buried there, him and his offspring. And um, Abraham's faith was rewarded. As we read the rest of the Old Testament, that cave of Machpelah became the burial plot for all of Abraham's family. It became the royal burial plot. Abraham himself was buried there, and then later on his son Isaac was buried there, then his grandson Jacob. The cave was so important that, that even Joseph, who died in Egypt generations, a couple of generations later, he was buried in Egypt, but 430 years later, Moses exhumed the remains. He carried him with him through the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Moses died before he made it to the promised land, but Joshua took the bones of Joseph and buried them in this cave in Machpelah. He was repatriated in the promised land. See, Abraham, he wasn't a sucker. He was a believer. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. He believed that God would give this land to his sons and to their sons. And so 400 shekels was actually a small price to pay in the grand scheme of things. Abraham's modest investment earned him an incalculable return as the word of God became reality. And so one of the questions that this passage asks us is, where are we investing in this lifetime? 
You know, if God has promised us this heavenly future where we're brought into his family, uh, where we are given this home for all of eternity, where we experience the blessings of being in his presence and everything you could ever imagine, shouldn't be that, that be the thing that we're investing in? Isn't that worth investing in? Uh, God's kingdom, shouldn't it drive our priorities and our investment goals? Shouldn't the reality future, the future reality of heaven, shape our investments today? I love that you're here this morning because coming to church is one way of investing in God's kingdom. You're here worshiping God. You're thanking Jesus for the gift uh, and the gift that you trust will come in the future. And every time we stop, every time we dedicate ourselves to God, every time we read the Bible or stop to pray or pray with somebody else, we're investing in God's kingdom. But by the glory of God, many of you understand that the investment is also financial. And the reason that we're sitting in this church today is because men and women saw the value of God's promises in 1874. Some of them donated land and bricks and wood to build this church. And more recently, men and women like you and me have invested in this building to make sure that we'll be able to continue sharing the gospel here for as long as we're all around and hopefully into the next generations. See, what inspired those original donors still inspires us today as we aim to share the hope of Jesus Christ in the Napa Valley and beyond. Um, like we said about Charlotte and the kids program, we're not, not here to build a business. We're here to build God's kingdom. We're, we're here to invest in the lives of people in this town so that they can enjoy the same blessing that we will enjoy for all of eternity when we have our faith in Jesus. Don't you think that's worth investing in? Because we trust that this kingdom is real and we trust that one day this earthly kingdom will be no more all of this that seems so important now, it, it'll all pass away. All of the things that we keep in our homes and all of the things we spend our money on, they won't be important anymore because God's kingdom will be all in all. And as we've learned, God will provide. He will provide everything for us. On that day, our faith will be made sight and we'll see that our investment was worthwhile. What are you investing in? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of the future of heaven. We know we haven't seen it personally, but we trust that all of the loved ones who've died in Christ, we pray, we, we trust that they are with you now. And we pray that you give us deep trust that your kingdom is coming. Help us to invest our lives, our energy, our talent, all that we are in your kingdom for the glory of Jesus. Amen.